We may, uh, we may have a few people come on in late, but that's okay. Uh, hopefully there's still room. Well, welcome back if you were here last week. Uh, it's good to see you again. If you're, if you're just coming here for the, for the first week, I'm glad that you decided to come. Uh, my name is Matt Quintana, and I'm one of the, one of the people who will be leading this class. Um, you might have, might have seen in the, in the announcement that, that Gary is also a, a part of this, and uh, Gary and I meet weekly, and uh, we've been doing that for the past few years, and, and he's been training me. Hopefully, I, I do want to go into ministry one day, and so he's been giving me opportunities to teach. Um, so we've been putting this together. He would love to, to get up and teach and, and, and be here every, every week. Unfortunately, just with his Parkinson's, it's hard for him to, to do that. So um, I don't think he's going to be able to make it tonight, which is, uh, which is a bummer. But, um, but uh, we are working together, so you, so you don't have to. You are stuck with me, but you don't have to worry that it's you know, just my crazy thoughts. At least Gary's kind of, <laughs> kind of keeping, me, uh, keeping me in control. So um, I'll just open us with a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll get started. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for, uh, for this Sunday that we could gather together this morning as your body to worship you and to, uh, to hear from your word, to sing praises. We thank you for your precious word as we gather together to study it. I pray that you would help me, Lord, to speak what is true about your word, to speak uh, truthfully from it. Would you open our eyes, would you open our hearts to see what you have to say to us through this book, which you have inspired by your Holy Spirit. You have inspired the text that John wrote, and you have given it to us as a part of the Bible, as a part of Holy Scripture. It is meaningful, it is relevant, it is important for our lives as we looked last week at the opening verses and it says blessed are those who read aloud the words of this prophecy blessed are those who hear blessed are those who keep the words of the book of this prophecy so we we ask for your help father in keeping these words in obeying them and in responding to them correctly it's in the name of our precious savior that we pray amen uh just a couple of things off the top before we get started. If you are here for, for the first time and you weren't here last week, that's it's great and you can hop right in with us. We did last week kind of cover some, some basics and some foundations for how we're going to be approaching the book, how we're going to be studying the book. And so um, you won't necessarily be lost if you, if you weren't here, but it will be good and I think important for you to go back online. You can listen to the audio. Uh, there's some some handouts and some different things you can download. You can look at my PowerPoint. It will just be helpful for you to get an idea of what we're, uh, where we're at, what we're doing, some of the language that we're using. Um, uh, yeah, so go back and listen to it if you can. Uh, if you want a couple of the handouts that I did give out last week, uh, I can give those to you. I have some extras. Um, other than that, it's kind of good on the logistical stuff. Um, let's see. Yeah, I think, think that's good. Um, all right, so part of your, we, we did give, I did give you some homework last week. Um, if you weren't here, maybe you're going to be scared and you won't come back again, but I hope you, hope you come back. But uh, I gave homework, and your, your homework, uh, one part of it was to read the entire book of Revelation and to try and do that in one sitting, if you could, to, um, to take it all in and to, to see the, the message of the book, how it flows. Um, was anyone able to do that? Were, were you guys able to, to read the book? 
Great, three sittings, that's, that's great. Uh, well, I'd love to, I'd love to hear from, from some of you guys about how, how did that go for you? How was it uh, reading through the whole book? Um, if it wasn't in one sitting, in a couple sittings, and, and trying to think about the bigger picture, was that helpful? No? Yes. It took a lot longer than that. Did it? <laughs> what, were some, what were some takeaways that you had reading the book in, in one sitting or in a couple sittings, reading it as a whole? Well, the seven, obviously the seven is yeah. huge, and then uh, it gets to, like, right to the seven, and then it starts over with another seven, and it in there, that became really apparent to reading through it. Yeah, you pick up on those themes, on the structural yeah. parallels throughout the book. Anything else that stood out as you read the, read the book? Yeah. It began in Genesis, and it ended, it is finished in Revelation, mm-hmm. which is like the final conclusion of earthly history. Was we'll have uh, I'll have a lot more to say about that, but that's a really good observation. Yeah. Uh, anyone else? Anything that stood out from reading the book? Well, just because you kind of alerted us on it, the idea of endurance. I mean, you hear that yeah. throughout when you're reading. It talks about you know you need to endure things like that. So yeah. It requires patient endurance. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Anything else that uh, that stood out reading the book? Joy every time I read it. Yeah, it is. It is. It's an amazing book. Jesus came as a, a servant and to, to save, but he comes back as a king and to see how that works out. And, and yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah, to build off that, how many different ways Jesus is described and explained, his, how he appears, just mm-hmm. vast. Yeah. Yeah, it is. He's in control. He is. Yes, he's in control. Uh, Well, I thought it might be helpful to to quickly, for those of you who weren't here and those of you who were, to just recap a few of the things that we talked about last week. And so I introduced you to uh, a method for studying the Bible, Bible study methods. We talked about four steps for studying the Bible. Can anyone tell me those four steps? I didn't tell you there'd be a pop quiz. <laughs> Step number one, seeing. seeing. All right. This, uh, this one's going to ask the question, what does the text say? Step number two, understanding. There we go. This is going to ask the question, what does it mean? Step number three, sharing. This is going to ask the question, what truths or, or shared truths is this passage teaching? And then step number four, responding. This is going to ask the question, so what? What do we, what do, we do with what this passage teaches? Uh, I emphasize that in the Bible there are literary categories. And so this is going to be important with a book like Revelation. There's a lot of different uh, things going on. And one of the ways that we can, we can responsibly handle the book and interpret it is by being, being able to figure out how we should approach different types of literature. And so uh, I noted that there are three types of literature in the Bible. Does anyone remember what those three types are? Narrative. Narrative, poetry. No, not apocalyptic. Discourse, there we go. Narrative, poetry, and discourse. Narrative is a text that makes its primary point by telling a story. Poetry, a text where normal language is modified to intensify its impact. It's going to use a lot of poetic devices and figures of speech. 
And then discourse is going to be a text that systematically and logically presents a series of ideas. I heard some of you guys uh, saying some other things which, which are going to fit into this next category of genres. A genre is a recognizable category of writing which follows certain rules and patterns. And so it's, it's kind of on the next level down under type. And the reason that we distinguish between that is because you're always going to have one of the types of literature, and then within the types, you can have different genres. And so there's seven genres. You can find each of those genres in poetry. You can find each of those genres in narrative and in discourse. And so um, that's why I think it's helpful to distinguish to have the larger level of categories and then the smaller ones. And so um, people, a couple people said apocalyptic, I heard one. Does anyone remember any of the other genres? Prophecy. Psalm. Psalm, yeah. Yes, wisdom's one. Apocalyptic, epistle, gospel, prophecy, psalm, story, and wisdom. Um, those are in the handout, and it gives you some definitions. Um, all right, so that's just a, a quick review of, of those things. And I, and I wanted to touch on this just as we're, uh, we, we get into the text today. Um, we'll be talking about a couple of the genres that become important. I have a question. Yeah, go for it. So can the, so the can the book be seems like the book can be more than one thing, like someone can burst out with poetry in the middle of That will it will mostly be looking at larger sections and so it could be looking at a whole book. Um, if there are clear divisions like, like that, um, for instance, in, in Isaiah, it's poetry, and then you get some very clear, distinct, oh, it goes into narrative, like in chapter 36 to 38. And so, um, so there are, it, it doesn't have to span the whole book. Sometimes it can, like with uh, Paul's letters, their discourse. Um, and, and then you have other genres embedded within that. He's giving a discourse, but he might tell a story. Um, something like that. So, yeah, good question. And, and again, just a reminder, if you ever have a question, go for it, raise your hand. And, uh, and I want this to be, be interactive and engaging. And so especially as we get into the text, I want to hear from you guys. And so I'll be asking you questions, and, and hopefully we can uh, study this together. Um, OK, last, uh, last bit of review. Um, last week, we had some good questions on a couple of these, these topics, um, especially with the second and third uh, steps of, of seeing and understanding and then sharing. And so I wanted to, to spend just a minute on, on talking about that. Um, one question that, that Frank asked that was, that was really good is with, with the, specifically the authors of the Old Testament, I, I said that a text has one meaning and that it always, for the most part, it, will have, it has one meaning, and that is what the author intended. And the author, so the author knew what he meant to intend. And so Frank asked, well, what about uh, like a prophecy where they're predicting something, or um, maybe it's something about, about Jesus, the, the Messiah that we find out in the New Testament, and did they know fully about that, or was that just God revealing that to them, and they wrote it down? And that's a really good question, because it's... Um, it's something that I, I think 
it's, it's challenging to us when we sometimes read the New Testament and how it uses the Old Testament. And, well, did the Old Testament person know that it was going to be about Jesus? Or are they taking out of context? What are they doing? And so um, the first response that I had to that is that I think that, um, I think that often we, we tend to, to undersell what the Old Testament authors could have known. I think that we, we sometimes... Um, we, we don't think that they're as smart as they were, or that they, they had truly an idea of what was going on. Um, and so I thought, well, okay, let's look at what Jesus and the New Testament authors said about the, the Old Testament authors. This is John 12. I mentioned this last week. And so right after John quotes from Isaiah 6, he said, Isaiah said these things because he saw his, that is Jesus's glory, and spoke of him. So... The, the author of the Gospel of John says that Isaiah saw Jesus' glory, and that's why he wrote what he did in, in Isaiah. I think that's, that's quite significant. In Acts 2, this is uh, Peter preaching on Pentecost, and he uh, quotes from Psalm 16. And he says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that, both, uh, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So David, the, the one who wrote the psalm, he was a man, he died. And, and the psalm that he's quoting, actually, is, is um, he's using it to prove the resurrection of Jesus, that Jesus resurrected. Um, it says, you will not abandon my, my soul to the dead. In your presence, I, uh, there's joy forevermore. And so he says that, that David died. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter says that David, when he was writing Psalm 16, he wasn't writing about himself, but he knew because of the promise God had made to him based on, on the covenant of God, uh, with, with David, 2 Samuel 7, that he was speaking about the future. He was speaking about the Messiah who is to come and who would be, be resurrected. And so that's a, a very profound, I think, text for uh, the way that we read the Psalms. If you were in Sherry's Bible study, you talked through some of the implications of that, but also for the way that we understand the, the Old Testament writers. David was a prophet who foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah. And then in, in 1 Peter, he's talking about, um, he's addressing, addressing a church and he's talking about the salvation found in Christ. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. There's a lot in there, but what he's saying is that the prophets spoke about the grace that was to come in Christ Jesus. They spoke about salvation um, by faith in Christ, and, and they, they, they knew that was coming. They were writing about that. And there's a few other things that he says they knew. They knew that uh, 
that the spirit of Christ, the spirit of Christ was, was pointing to the sufferings of the Messiah. So they knew that the Messiah would suffer. And then they knew that he would be glorified after that. And then they also, he, he says that they also knew that they weren't just writing for themselves, for the people of their day, but that they were writing for Christians hundreds of years in the future who would read this, read this inspired scripture. Um, what they didn't know was when it would happen and exactly how it would happen, the time and circumstances, but they knew it would happen. And I think that's, again, significant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, when I read the Psalms, I know that David was writing about, you know, his um, Saul was after him and he was hiding out and kept the trail and just, you know, dealing with all that. But at a time in my life when I was feeling betrayed and stuff, I, I was comforted by reading the Psalms. And so it kind of had a double meaning to me. I mean, God spoke through the Psalms to me. But I realized it was David talking about. Yeah, and so um, can it have a double meaning depending upon where you are in your life and what problems you're having? Because I've read the Bible, and then a different time I read the same thing, and it speaks to me about the situation where I am in, even though I'm talking about someone else. Yeah, did I pay you? Because you just <coughs> led perfectly into my next slide. <laughs> um, I think this this will help, and if it doesn't answer your question, then let me know. Um, so I would say that, that no, a text can't have a double meaning because it means one thing, but what it can have double of or multiple of or many, many, many of is significance or reference. And so um, when I was talking about the, the step of sharing, of finding the, the timeless, eternal truth that the text was communicating, that's going to be in this blue circle in the middle. one. This is the meaning. It's what the author originally intended. It's timeless. It's eternal. It applies to all people of all places everywhere. Um, and, and so you'll hear, me call, you'll hear me call that the meaning or uh, the shared truth or the theological truth. There's only one of those. But then when you look at the, the, the yellow circle on the outside, this is going to be both uh, the, the significance and the reference. And so the reference would be um, the, the people, the places, the objects, events to which the text points in the ancient world, how the author's meaning related to the lives of those in the past. And so um, there is an underlying truth, and then it applied one way to these people back then. And he might even, the author might even be mentioning how it applied and the things that they did and the ways that they worked out that truth. And then the significance or the response or the application for us today in our contemporary world, how does the author's meaning relate to our lives? And so this is uh, multifaceted, it's, it's changing and it's unique to each reader. And so the way that, that I respond to the truth of a text is going to be different than how you respond. But the, the, the key is that the truth that we're responding to is the same. And so I can read a psalm or I can read a passage in scripture and identify what the, the meaning is and respond to it one way in my life right now. And two weeks later or two years later, 20 years later, respond to that same truth, the same thing differently. And so that's where God's word, which is it's so good and it provides what we need, um, 
we can continually return to it and it's not like, oh yeah, I read it once, I'm good. Um, I don't need to read it again because it continually is applying to our lives in new ways. Continually, um, God, by his spirit, is continually revealing how we can respond to that truth. So does, does, that, does that help at all? Okay, Jeff? English is messy because we use meaning as for your... Someone, someone might say, this is what it means to me. Exactly. We're talking about significance. Yes. But you're distinguishing yes. between the author's intent and how you would apply this in your life. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's good to pick up on because that, that is the, um, the, the big problem that a lot of people have is, wait, well, it means something, because that's what you hear all the time. You go to a Bible study, well, what's it mean to you? And, and I don't like using that because I think it does tend to blur the lines and I want to, to be very clear that no, it means what the author intended it to mean. I don't get to say, oh yeah, I want it to mean this. But then how it applies, how I respond to it is different. Um, so yeah, that's, that's helpful to pick up on. And so you'll hear me distinguish, draw a really fine line between those two. Do you yes, have a question? I don't exactly where in the Bible it says there's nothing new under the sun. But when she was talking about the Psalms, it, it, it gives me great joy to know that um, I know I'm not the only one. Although he was writing for a specific reason, the things that he wrote about and the things that he was going through, we go through the same things. So therefore, those words are very comforting because he went through that. And we're going through the same situation, different time, same situation. Exactly, and, so and um, especially if we, if we look at the Psalms, and um, like Psalm 16, that, uh, that Peter says, no, it wasn't David writing it about himself, he was writing about, uh, about Jesus but he can identify with it because as believers we are in Christ and so by faith we are united with Christ and so we can pray the prayers of Christ, we can repeat the words of Christ. Um, Hebrews says that, that he was, was tested, like, tempted like us and, and we have the great high priest who identifies with us in our weakness and so it's that same sort of idea that we can, um, we can pray these words back to God and uh, they, they can apply, apply to us as well. So. It's beautiful, and um, I, I was gonna. Uh, I'll, I'll try and try and do this quickly because I, I do really want to get into uh, to the text. But hopefully, this will be um, be a helpful example of, of this. And so, in First uh, Corinthians nine, Paul is is um, he's explaining explaining how as a, as a minister of the gospel, as an apostle, he has the right to be paid. He has the right to be compensated for his work. Um, Paul is, is not going to take any money because he wants to give freely as, as he received freely from Christ. Um, but because of this, the Corinthians are saying, well, no, you must just not be a real apostle because you won't take our money. Um, so he's trying to say, I can take your money if I wanted, but I don't want to. So he's trying to prove, okay, here's, why, here's the foundation for, for why I, I should be able to be paid. So he... Uh, he quotes, um, he, he gives some examples. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It seems really weird at first glance. He says that this is that somehow this verse from... Uh, 
the, the Pentateuch, the um, first five books of the Bible, from, from Deuteronomy 25, he says that this is relevant for the argument he's making. And so what he's doing is he's appealing to the underlying truth that that verse is, is built on. And so he then goes on to explain, um, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak certainly for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Now, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? So it gives the example, the, the ox, when it's working, you should feed it. And just like if you're farming and if you're, you're working, you expect to, to benefit from the, what you're farming. You expect to, uh, to use some of that. And so then he says... If you're farming spiritually, which is a metaphor that Paul uses for his, uh, his ministry, then you deserve to receive some compensation for that. And so the underlying truth, or what I would call the shared truth, is that those who benefit from the work of others should provide for those workers. Those who benefit from, from the work of others should provide for those workers. And if you take that as the foundation, you can see how that applies then to all these other situations. If we take that as the blue part, those who benefit from the work of others should provide for those workers. Then we go out to the yellow part. In the yellow is Paul saying that he should be paid, that he should be paid for as an apostle. Another area in the yellow is that you should, uh, you should let your, your oxen eat when they're working for you. Another, another area there is that if someone is, is farming, that they should get to um, have some of the crops. And so d does that help see how, okay, we have this core meaning and then the way that it then applies is, uh, is going to be, be different in all situations, but the, the core underlying truth is the same. Okay, hopefully, hopefully that's so you're helpful. you're saying that the same thing in Deuteronomy. Yes. That means when Paul says it. And, and the challenge is, um, is that in Paul's argument, he doesn't explicitly state this one shared truth in a simple and straightforward proposition. Instead, he demonstrates that it's implicit in the argument, and in fact, that it was also implicit in the law that Moses was giving. And so, this is uh, what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, and then he expands on, on this, uh, this law, and because the meaning of the law wasn't just, oh yeah, don't murder. Anything else is fine, but, but no, it was, was aimed deeper at the heart. And, and so Jesus takes it and expands it, and he's not making it mean more than it um, meant before. What he's doing, actually, is just correcting the literalistic and the, really the minimalistic interpretations of the Pharisees. And so, um, so Jesus does that, does that same thing. And so what we do with the third step of sharing is identify the timeless, universal, shared truths that are being commended to us by the biblical authors in the text that they have written. All right, um, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, I just wanted to, to remind us of a couple of definitions because I'm going to be using them frequently and so we, we can be on the same page. So when I talk about an illusion, an illusion in the Bible is an authorially intended reference to another text of Scripture. This can be through the usage of an introductory phrase, 
as it is written, where they go on to quote then a passage from the Old Testament, or it could be through more subtle means, such as a reference to words or phrases, events, figures, and themes. And so this is especially relevant in, uh, in Revelation, because John doesn't actually quote from the Old Testament anywhere, but he, in almost every verse, is alluding to something, drawing on words or phrases or themes. So uh, this becomes, becomes very important. Uh, eschatology, big theological word. The eschaton, uh, the term eschaton just means last or end. And so eschatology is the study of or the theology of the end. Um, so if something is eschatological, it's related to the future or the end times. Um, it is important to note that our concept of the end times might be different than the Bible's. And so as uh, I talked about last week and as we'll talk about today, the New Testament authors see themselves as in the last days. And so their outlook, their entire outlook can rightly be described as eschatological because they are seeing themselves in these days and, and looking forward to the future. Um, Okay, this is, uh, I keep saying I want to get in the text, and I really do. This is the last thing before we get in the text. Um, because this is going to be important for how we, how we look at the entire book of Revelation. And so uh, there's a few different general approaches that people will take to, to reading and interpreting the book. Um, if you're like me growing up, I heard one approach, and that was all I thought until I went to Bible college and I took a class on Revelation and my professor was like, memorize all these definitions and was like, whoa, there's other ways that people interpret the book. Um, and so I thought it would be helpful to just, to introduce you to these. Don't feel like you've got to memorize them or get them all down. Um, I'm not saying that uh, there's gonna be a quiz on these next week, there won't, it's not part of your homework. Um, but yeah, just to expose you to these and hopefully it'll be helpful as we, we get into the book. So um, the first one, there's a view called the preterist view. And so the word preterist means past. This view holds that Revelation um, is a prophecy for John and his first century readers about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And so everything in the book has already been fulfilled. It's all um, been in the past. Next view is the uh, historicist, uh, the historist view. And this view is going to suggest that the contents of uh, the content of chapters 6 through 20 refers to a series of specific historical events from John's day until Jesus' return. And so, for example, the, the collapse of the Roman Empire or the corruption of the Roman Catholic uh, papacy, the, the popes, or the Protestant Re Reformation, people are going to look at different things in the book and say, oh yeah, there's this big event in history. This is what, it, what it's talking about. Um, I'm not going to take the time to explain and give examples of how they interpret different passages and tell you why I think it's, it's wrong or, or right. Um, the, the one thing to note with this view is, is that it, it really only focuses on the, the Western church, um, so Europe and then um, uh, now in America, and then every single person who takes this approach, they interpret things differently. And so there's no, you can't find a unified approach for, for that view. Um, so it does, does cause you to question the legitimacy of it. Um, the next view is, is the futurist view. And so this is probably gonna be the one that most people are, are familiar with, that most people will have heard. It's the one that, that I um, 
I have known the best. And so this view is going to hold that the entire book, except for chapters 1 through 3, prophesies about the events surrounding the return of Christ at the end of history. It's looking um, in the far future, at the end of time, very specific, the end times, when Christ will return, and the tribulation, and the things right before that. Um, there's some, some variations within this camp. The most extreme will be um, what's referred to as dispensational futurism, which interprets the visions super literally, very chronologically as representing the actual historical order of events that will happen in the future last days. And so if you go through chapter by chapter, you just line them up on a timeline and that's exactly how it's going to happen. Going to try and uh, interpret that as literally as they can, even with all the symbolism. Um, because it's so common, I, I, I will say a couple things about this. Um, the biggest problem, I think, with this approach is that it almost always interprets the Bible through the lens of modern events first rather than the text on its own terms and so it tries to, to look at things that are going on and then say oh yeah this must be this rather than looking at the text um, and drawing out the meaning from that and, and it, it does call into question that the relevance of the book for um, for anyone except those living in the last times and so this view makes it um, makes it clear that because it's about the far, far, far future, it's only those people who are living in those times that, uh, that the, the book is really relevant for. And even for them, um, it, it becomes a little irrelevant if they're just going to be, be raptured. And so it, it does beg the question why God would have given John the revelation in the first place and why it would be a part of the divinely inspired scriptures um, if it's going to be irrelevant for everyone who isn't going to be in that time. Um, there's more I could say, but I, I think that um, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about some of these things um, more down the road. Um, you know, another view is, is the idealist view, and this approach, in contrast to that last one, is going to see um, Revelation purely symbolically. It's portraying the ongoing conflict between the forces of God and the forces of Satan throughout the entire age of the church. John's symbols are typically not tied to any one event, history is seen as cyclical. Um, most would affirm the future return of Christ at some point in the future, but um, the, the point is, is that um, history repeats itself, as the saying goes, and, and Revelation is just giving some um, ways that the, 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 the world, um, which is, is sinful, will keep, keep repeating itself, and, and we keep seeing this conflict that goes on. And so... Um, that's kind of a, a counter to that last view where everything is very literal, everything is, is purely figurative. Um, and this last view, which is, would be the one that I would, uh, I would commend and the one that I will be uh, proposing is um, the eclectic approach. And so it's eclectic, it's kind of a combination. Um, and really, it, I think it, it gleans from the positive points of the other views and, and also helps balance out their, their weaknesses. So, for example, with um, the idealists, the eclectic approach would say that Revelation has ongoing uh, relevance for the church today. Most of John's visions, visions are not tied to one particular historical event, but they communicate a theological message symbolically that is applicable for all time, for all people. The visions of judgment speak over and over again to Christians of all ages, giving them an exhortation to remain faithful in the face of suffering. 
with the preterists, the, those who, who said it was only in the past. Uh, this view um, would acknowledge that John's revelation did indeed address his first century audience, and so it has to have been relevant for them, or else why would John have written it to them? And so there, there is, um, it, it is important to recognize that it, it had to have meant something to them. Um, and then with, again, the preterists and the, the historicists, the, the eclectic approach would agree that various parts of John's visions find a measure of fulfillment in actual historical events. The key difference, though, is that their meaning is not linked exclusively to those particular events. Revelation finds fulfillment in countless events throughout the church age. Um, and then lastly, with uh, futurists and historicists, the eclectic position also looks forward to the future literal climactic return of Jesus to rescue his people, defeat his enemies, and usher in uh, the new creation. Um, so again, that's just super fast through those views, through um, ways that, that different people are going to be approaching the book. This last view is, is how, again, I'm going to be approaching the book, trying to take a combination of, of a lot of um, the, the good, I think, from some of these other approaches, but you will hear me stress over and over the, the need to interpret the symbolism and interpret what, uh, what John is doing, not necessarily literally, but literarily, as I, as I said. And, and so seeing how John is, is saying something, what is he drawing on from the Old Testament, um, and then how, how is that communicating a theological truth that we can then, then take. Um, I, w I, I will also add that there's, there's several views, there's a lot of views, and there hasn't been one view throughout church history that has been the orthodox view, the right view, like um, with, you know, a view on the Trinity or, or the deity of Christ, where if you, if you take this approach to Revelation, you are outside of, uh, of what has been believed is true and you can't be a Christian. There's, I think there's a lot of room for, um, for us to uh, challenge one another and to, to try and um, refine our views. Uh, there, there is a right view. There is a right way to approach the book, and we should, I think, attempt to glorify God by honoring the text of Scripture and, and honoring what the author intended. Um, but if someone has a different view than you in this area, it doesn't mean that they're a heretic or that uh, you need to go to a different church than, uh, than them. Unfortunately, this happens. It, it really does, and it's, it's a bit, bit crazy. But um, throughout history, this this topic of eschatology has been one that, that Christians are, are willing to disagree on and, and still have um, a, a large level of, of fellowship with one another as they hold to, um, as they, they hold to the, the foundational pieces. And, and there are some pieces of eschatology, like the fact that Jesus will return, that's, that's necessary, that's, that's vital. But um, when he will return, exactly how it's going to happen, those are, are some of the things that are, are subject to um, more, um, more debate. So, um, okay, with that, we can actually get into the text, which is, which is exciting. And so um, this, will, this will pretty much be the, the last time that I'm spending the, a good chunk of time reviewing or laying some groundwork. From now on, we're, we're really just going to get into the text and, and go through it. We will be doing some bigger uh, chunks at a time in the, in the upcoming weeks, and so we won't necessarily hit every single word of every single verse because we'd be here all night and uh, I would like that but I don't know if everyone else would so um, 
but, uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll have a lot more time to ask questions and to, to have some discussions. So um, hopefully you, you all read, um, read the passage before you came. There was, again, that homework assignment just asking you to, to be on the lookout for some certain things as you are reading, to be on the lookout for, uh, for what, uh, what John is saying, how he's saying it, um, repeated themes, stuff like that. And um, this will be, be things that I'll, I'll point out, but also that I, I hope I can ask, okay, what, did, what, what stood out? What did you see in the text? What, what was a the main theme? Or what was a repeated point? And we can, um, we can hear from one another. So um, with those around you if, you, if you could just spend a couple minutes, hopefully all of you read the text, just, just spend a couple minutes talking about what you what you saw, some things that stood out to you from the text. So if you think about the first step of, of Bible study, seeing um, that, I, that I talked about, just talk to the people around you about uh, some of the things you saw and also then understanding what does this passage mean? What do, what do you understand the author to be ten, intending? And then we'll come back together and, and hopefully get a head start going into the passage. Are you talking about the whole book? Or? Uh, sorry, uh, just for this, uh, this passage one um, oh, yeah one four through twenty that that we are going to be focusing on this week sorry good question I would love to hear from uh, from some of you guys what did you see in the text what stood out to you as you as you read what were some of the things that you picked up on I heard people talking. I hope you weren't just talking about the weather or something. It's a message for uh, kind of specific for that time, for one thing, for those seven churches mm-hmm. at that time period, and how Jesus is involved in kind of evaluating those churches. Yeah. And that he's overseeing those churches. Yeah. Anything else that, uh, that stood out? share kind of a simple thing, but um, uh, in verses 12 through 20, when um, John is describing um, Jesus, um, all so many of the words that are in there, and I just circled over and over different ones, are pictures of like just sparkling like light. Um, so like... Um, Lampstands is repeated, golden, white, white, snow, fire, furnace, seven stars, sun, shining, um, and then stars again. Like, it just keeps going over and over. Even though those words are, like, descriptions of things, like, the image that it's showing is just, like, this bright light. What do you think that means? What, what's the significance of that? Well, I, I think it's emphasizing the glory of Jesus. Yeah. Anything else? Well, it describes that he's the Alpha, the Omega, mm-hmm. and then it says, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. He has the keys to death and Hades. Um, yeah. He is, he is yeah. in control. He is the one with the keys. He's yeah, and that's uh, something that Joel mentioned about the way that it describes Jesus throughout the book is... Um, is really beautiful, and it's uh, it's it's glorious, and it is uh, it's it's really so different than I think we we think about Jesus a lot of the, a lot of times. So it's 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 a good practice to just go through and, and look at the ways that it talks about Jesus and, and think about that, reflect on that. Um, well, let's look at these uh, these first few verses. So 
uh, here, here, I'll just put up on the screen, um, including the stuff from, from last, actually, no, I have, uh, there we go. Um, starting in verse four, we, we went through the first three verses last week, and so, um, in those first three verses, we learned that John was, one, writing an apocalypse. In verse one, it says the revelation, or the apocalypse, the, the word uh, is the Greek word for apocalypse, which God gave him to show his servants, the thing that must soon take place. And he says that it's, uh, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And so it's also a prophecy. And so we learn, if you're thinking about the genres, apocalyptic and prophecy. There's, there's two right there. Verse four, though, John, to the seven churches in the provinces of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. What do we learn from verse 4 about the genre of the book? It's more, um, uh, it's speaking directly. I mean, how does the word yeah, think about, think about that. There's verse 4, similarities to other places in the Bible. Yeah. What, is it, what does it sound like? Yes, it sounds, like, it sounds like you just read one of, the beginning of one of Paul's letters or one of, uh, one of the other uh, letters in the New Testament. And so um, John begins his book like a letter, with a greeting. So if you, um, if you read the, the New Testament letters, there's some characteristics that are, that are common in all of them. They all will start with a prologue, uh, or sorry, with, with an opening. And in that opening, it'll usually list the sender, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, then the recipients to the church in Colossae, we're going through Colossians, uh, and then a greeting, grace and peace to you from, from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Then you'll get into a prayer, it'll be either be a prayer of thanksgiving or, or praying for the people he's writing, and then you move from the prayer to the body of the letter, where you have both teaching and, um, and urging, exposition and exhortation, and then you'll wrap up with, uh, with a travel log, and, and by that I mean um, in, in Paul letter, Paul's letters he says, um, I'm coming there soon, prepare a room for me, or I'm sending so-and-so to you and um, bring this and do that, and he, so he kind of gives instructions for his travels, and then you have, uh, have a closing, where it's usually another blessing, grace and peace uh, be with you, amen. And so if we look at Revelation, I, I, um, I forgot to make a slide for it, but we can actually see how Revelation fits into that structure as an epistle. We have um, a prologue, which is the first few verses. Then we have this greeting and introduction. And then we get into the, the body of the book, really chapters 2 through 22, the beginning of 22. And then in the beginning of 22, you have a travel log. Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And then you have, uh, you have the closing where um, he, he blesses those who, who read the words of the prophecy and, and ends with, uh, come Lord Jesus, come, amen. And so uh, the whole book is structured as a letter, which I think is really interesting. Um, verse four says that John is writing to the seven churches. Joel, again, mentioned the, this number seven throughout Revelation. It's really the favorite number of Revelation. And so throughout the Bible and then in John's, uh, John's book, the number seven stands for completion or fullness. Think about um, the, the very first book of the Bible, first chapters, 
There's seven days of creation in which God creates everything. And so seven is the fullness, it's completion. Um, in Leviticus, sprinkling the blood on the altar seven times signified a complete action, as did the length of the seven days for festivals. It took, took them seven days to march around Jericho, um, seven days to go from unclean to clean. You get the point, there's, there's a whole bunch of other things that we could pick up on. And so the number seven is especially important here because the seven churches represent the fullness of the church. Uh, this letter was addressed to seven actual churches, but it was meant for much more than that. The book speaks to all churches at all times. It speaks for the fullness of the churches of Christ back then and today. And so with this in mind that this, uh, this book is really one big letter, how, how does this change the way we might read it or understand it? Is there any, any significance there that you think? Too. Yeah, it is. Yeah, because that's the, the people love reading the epistles because they are very applicable and, um, and they're clear. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's addressed to, to the church. That's what all the epistles are addressed to the church. Most, most of the epistles. And so we have Revelation as the last book of the Bible and it has just followed. There's 27 books in the New Testament. You have the Gospels and then Acts and then Bam, 21 letters, and then the book of Revelation. And so it follows these 21 other letters, and then it opens the same way that they do. It kind of serves as the, uh, the structural climax to all the, the addresses to the churches and to the entire New Testament. And because of the seven, to the fullness of the churches, I, I think that um, the, the message of Revelation is an introduction to the end of the canon and also... It, it prepares us to read it as the culmination of God's addresses to, uh, to his churches, to his people in the New Testament. Uh, if we, we keep looking here, the, the introduction, grace and peace, again, that's, uh, that's common in, in all the letters. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. One thing that we'll, we'll see in Revelation and in apocalyptic literature is that it's typically written to people who are enduring suffering or trials or persecution. And so there's temptation to compromise, to, um, to, to not um, be faithful and to, um, to give into the ways of the world. And so um, these people, they, they certainly need peace from God. One of the purposes of this revelation is to provide the eternal trans-historical perspective of God, this God's eye view, which can enable readers to persevere through their trials. And so this description of God as the one who is and who was and who is to come, uh, it, it should do just that. The phrase here is used, says one author, to inspire confidence in God's sovereign guidance of all earthly affairs and to instill courage to stand strong in the face of difficulties which test faith. The title is an allusion to uh, to. God revealing himself to Moses in Exodus 3, uh, the divine name. He says, in the, as he appears to Moses in the burning bush, I am who I am. Go, uh, go to, to Pharaoh and go to the people and, and tell them that I am who has sent you. And it's the name from which we get Yahweh. And so he's, he's drawing on that, I am who I am. It's the one who is. Matt, it's interesting too in this, just this one section, that picture of um, I am, or the eternal peace of God is repeated essentially three times in here. 
He says, who was and is and is to come. And then he says, he's the Alpha and Omega. And then he says, at the end, fear not, for I am the first and the last. So like three times in these few verses, it's being clearly stated, like the eternality of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so we have, we have the seven spirits before the throne. Well, what is that? I think that this seven, the seven spirits before the throne is in reference to the Holy Spirit with the number seven, again, serving as the fullness of the, the spirit or completion. Um, I think it, this, the, this is also likely drawn from Isaiah 11, where in a passage about the Messiah, it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. We'll talk about the root of, of David or the root of Jesse in a couple chapters. Um, and the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. And so if you count with me, the spirit of Yahweh, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, fear of Yahweh. There's seven. Sevenfold spirit that's going to rest on the Messiah you have the fullness of the Spirit uh, here that is with Jesus. Yeah, I think it comes Jesus. up again later on in Revelation. It does. Yeah, it comes up several times. Um, another additional allusion here is, is with Zechariah 4, where the prophet sees a vision of a lampstand with seven lamps, and that represents the, the power of God's Spirit, which will bring grace for the building of the temple. In Revelation 4, the seven lamps are again identified with the seven spirits. And so um, I think, and I'll touch on this a little later, the Holy Spirit here, the fullness of the Holy Spirit, empowers us to become the temple in which God dwells. And, and that's picking up on the allusions to, to Zechariah. And then finally, in uh, the, the end of this here, um, this greeting is from Jesus Christ. So this greeting is Trinitarian from uh, the, the Father, the one who, who was and who is to come, the one who is and who was and who is to come, the Spirit, and then from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. If you were here this morning in, uh, in, in Greg's sermon, um, we, we mentioned a couple of these things. Uh, the same, that same phrase, the, the firstborn from the dead, is, is what Colossians says in Colossians 1.18. Um, and, and there, Greg quoted the verse as well, there's an allusion to, to Psalm 89, where it, it mentions uh, the firstborn and then also the, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Uh, I think also with the, the faithful witness piece in Isaiah 55, it says of the Messiah um, that uh, it says, incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. And so um, Yahweh says that he will make the, the future messianic king a witness. I love this little doxology here at the end, end of verse 5 and in, into verse 6. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve as God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. What does it mean, do you think, that we, the church that he's addressing, are a kingdom and priests to our God? First, is there any illusion there? Does anyone, is it alluding anywhere else? 
Yes, I don't know if they have scripture first, but we're um, our royal priesthood and the word of our Yes. <laughs> So Exodus 19 at, at Sinai, God's establishing the covenant, and he says that he's going to make Israel the kingdom priests. Uh, and then Peter, in his first letter in chapter 2, picks up on the same thing. Um, and, uh, and so there's a connection there. But uh, I, I think what, what this means is, is first, we are a, a kingdom and priests to our God. Our identification with Christ's kingship means that we are also considered to be ruling with Jesus. We'll see this in, uh, in chapter 2 and then in chapter 20. This verse here is alluding to Exodus 19, like I mentioned, where God makes known his purpose for Israel. His people were to be a kingly and priestly nation. And this means that they were to uh, mediate Yahweh's revelation of himself, his covenant to all the Gentile nations. The Old Testament is clear, though, that Israel did not fulfill that. They failed to do that. And so John here then picks up on this and he says that in Christ, uh, that, that now that those who are in Christ, those who are a part of the church, um, pick up where Israel left off and that John sees Exodus 19.6 as fulfilled in the church. The church now continues the true Israel as the inheritor of God's promises and his covenant people. And so the church is now to be a kingdom of priests, kingdom and priests. And, and what that means also is that we are to display God's reign in uh, the kingdom peace and priests. We mediate, we are to, to be mediators of, of those who, who do not know God. And as, as those who do know God, we are to, uh, to bridge the gap, so to speak, to, to mediate and, and shine light, the light of the gospel, and, and uh, point them to God. And so we now uh, pick up on, on, on this task. Yes, Sherry. I was just going to say, this made me think a lot about um, uh, that picture of it in the last days, um, and realizing that that is where we live as we look forward to Christ's coming. But then just to have in our minds then this reality of the kingdom now, and I know I don't often live with those kind of like thoughts and eyes every day for realizing that I am living in this kingdom now. I mean, John doesn't say he's going to make us into these. Someday when he finishes all this, he's going to make us like he's made us now into mm -hmm. this. And this is the reality that we live in even now, even as eschatologically, we're looking forward to the fulfillment of the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a, there's a few other points that I'll, I'll make with that at some other places in this, this passage here. Um, moving on to these next verses where he concludes kind of this, this introduction. These, uh, verse, verse 7 at least, is really a combination of two allusions, two almost quotations from the Old Testament. Daniel 7.13, where the Son of Man is enthroned and exalted over the nations as he comes with the clouds, and then Zechariah 12.10, where um, Israel obtains uh, this end-time victory over the nations, and they repent before the Lord, who they, they have pierced. Um, Zechariah, in chapter 12, also speaks of mourning for a firstborn son. Just mentioned the firstborn a verse, verse ago, and so that's 
another connection, but um, John here sees the enthronement and exaltation of Christ as the fulfillment of Daniel 7, and he takes the verse from Zechariah and he universalizes it. He, uh, he says that it's, it's, uh, he applies it not only to Israel, but to the whole world. And so um, he recapitulates it. Recapitulation, uh, another definition, is, is when an author takes earlier material, mostly from the Old Testament, and summarizes and conflates it. When John does this, he is also showing that the events depicted in his book are the consummation of all that imagery, the final recapitulation to which they prophetically point. And so he's summing all things up and, uh, and, and applying it here. Uh, verse 8, we, we talked about a little bit with this phrase, the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, here we have the Lord God saying this. Um, I am the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, and who is to come. Most of you probably know that, that Alpha is the first letter of the, the Greek alphabet, and the last letter is Omega. And so, in effect, he's saying from A to Z, um, what this this type of um, this type of figure of speech does is it, it takes two opposites and it highlights everything in between. And so, what what this is doing, as he's saying, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and is to come, is is God is stressing His presence throughout all of history from the beginning to the end and everywhere in between, especially he is the one who is. They, he puts that at the front. You might expect it to be who was and who is and who is to come, past, present, future, but he stresses the who is at the very beginning because he's the one who is present in all of history right now. Yeah, just to back up a little bit because I was curious about your reference to Zechariah. So when I... When I was reading this, so in Zechariah, it's more addressing the nation of Israel as being the ones that were pierced by their enemies. Is that correct? And then now it's it's kind of taking that to also mean now that it's actually Christ. I mean that that Christ is, is similar to the nation of Israel that was you know afflicted by you know was pierced by the, by his enemies. Um, you know that is coming out of it. And so verse, verse 10 of Zechariah 12, and so I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. And so uh, God is the one I think who has been okay, pierced so, here. So is it like saying basically, I mean, I don't mean to take it too far, but um, that you attacked Judah, so in fact, in effect, you attacked God himself. Yeah, well, and I think also that he's, um, that, that Judah, in, in their wickedness, has pierced God um, in, their, in their evil. Um, yeah, and so it's interesting how John takes that and, and he, he uses these themes and weaves them together and, and forms kind of a mosaic of these eschatological themes. Um, verses 9 through 11, as we, we move on now to uh, the, the second part of this passage. Um, John, and in, in we'll just go through these verses quickly. John is, is commissioned to write a prophetic revelation. Um, he writes as a fellow partaker in the tribulation. As your brother and companion, or some translations say your, your brother and your fellow partaker in the suffering 
and the kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. Um, this is something that, that Sherry mentioned, but if we look, these things are here now. They're not just in the future. He is presently his, their companions in suffering or tribulation, uh, is another translation, um, and kingdom and patient endurance. And so suffering and tribulation is right now. The kingdom is right now, and we are to be patiently enduring right now. These things are, are not just for the future, they are right now. I was also thinking about the um, prophets who write about all three of those things too, like Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel. Like they all write about suffering, kingdom, and endurance. Yep. <laughs> so like those are not new <laughs> to yep. the people of God. Yeah. Um, this, this commissioning really, uh, really resembles other prophetic commissions in the Old Testament. If you think of uh, Ezekiel or Isaiah, and so especially when, when he's charged to write what is revealed, think of, of God charging Moses to write down, God's charging Isaiah and Jeremiah to write down what they hear from him. Um, this puts John on the same level as, the, as all the prophets in terms of his authority. Um, and I think, again, John is even seeing himself as the climax of prophecy, the climax of the, the Bible. I thought verse 9 was especially interesting to me because he does talk about the suffering and the patient endurance, and he's in prison right now. Yeah, he's, he's exiled, yeah. Because of his faith. And so he, he was experiencing it at that moment. So it's not like, well, this might happen to you. It was, this is where I am, and that's what you can expect. <coughs> Um, then in, in verses 11, we find the, the seven churches to which this letter will be sent. Again, seven, fullness, it's, it's intended for all churches, both then and now. Can I share something fun if you back up one second about the trumpet piece? I'm sorry, but my brain about exploded. I am only doing saying this because I have to study numbers, so I was reading a whole book of numbers today. And in Numbers chapter 10, God talks about trumpets. Like, I've never really paid attention a whole lot when you see, like, the trumpet stuff in Scripture. But in Numbers 10, he tells them why they're to blow the trumpet at every, all these times he tells them, you're going to blow the trumpet here, and you're going to blow the trumpet here, and you're going to blow the trumpet here. And then at the end, he says, every time you blow the trumpet, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, you're going to remember, I am the Lord. And I was just like, wait a minute, Jesus, his voice is going to sound like a trumpet while he's telling them that I am the Lord. It was crazy. That's awesome. I love it. That's awesome. Um, all right, verse, verses 12 through 16. This, this picture right here, uh, I, I found this. Maybe you can't see it very well, but anyway, it's a um, representation of John before Jesus and this, this vision that he has of the exalted Christ. The first thing that, that he sees when he turns around are seven golden lampstands. We've, we've noted the, um, the significance of seven. And uh, in verse 20, it, it tells us that the lampstands represent the churches. Um, it's one of the few times that John tells us explicitly what he means. It's kind of nice. Um, and so uh, the, the lampstands are the churches. As I mentioned earlier, the lampstand imagery comes from Zechariah 4, where there's one lampstand and then there's seven, um, seven lamps on it. And so um, Greg Beal, who I quoted a lot last week, I don't have it up on the screen, unfortunately, but he, he does a really good job with this. So um, he, he talks about this, this allusion to Zechariah 4.2, 
4, 2 through 6, and he says, In Zechariah 4, the lampstand with its seven lamps is a figurative expression by which part of the temple furniture stands for the whole temple, which by extension also represents faithful Israel. In the tabernacle and temple, the lampstand, which had seven lamps, stood in the holy place before the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies, along with the bread of the presence. The Jews understood the light that came from its lamps to represent the presence of the Lord. Numbers 8, 1 through 4. In Zechariah's vision, the seven lamps seem to represent the power of the Spirit, as Yahweh says in 4, 6. And that the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, will give the people of Israel, the lampstands on which the lamps sit, the power by which to rebuild the temple. So the Spirit is going to give the people the power to rebuild the temple. John sees seven lampstands, each representing one of the seven churches and altogether representing the universal church. The church, as the continuation of true Israel, is likewise to draw its power from the seven lamps, which represent the Holy Spirit, as we see in, in 1.4 and in 4.5. As it seeks to build the new temple of God, the church is to draw its power from the seven lamps, that is the Holy Spirit, Thus, for John, the Latter-day Temple had already been inaugurated in the church. And I, I wish I had that on there because it's, it's long, but um, hopefully you could follow some of it. John is picking up on these, these really intricate themes and details in Zechariah about the Holy Spirit and about... Um, yes? Where was here? John and I are wondering about the seven lampstands. Does it have anything to do with the menorah, or is this individual lampstand? Yeah, uh, so, so the lampstand would have been the um, one with the um, seven candles. The seven candles, yeah. The menorah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so, anyway, he's, he's picking up on this imagery from Zechariah, and that is, is talking about the spirit and the power of the spirit, um, which is necessary for building the temple, rebuilding the temple. And I would also say that in Zechariah, the, the view is not just on rebuilding this temple and, and calling it good, but you see from the book of Zechariah and from the rest of the Old Testament that even after exile and they come back and rebuild the temple, that it wasn't like it was supposed to be. And they're waiting for the Messiah to come and build the temple. And John is saying, here it is. The, we're building the temple now and we do so through, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, in verses 13 through 16, we get this, this crazy picture of, of Jesus. He's like a son of man, dressed in a robe down to his feet, golden sash. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And, and we could walk through all of those, but, but I'll just quickly uh, point out the illusions and the, the places that John is drawing from for this description of Jesus. In verse 13, it's Daniel 7, 13 through 14, 10, uh, 5 through 6, and then Ezekiel 9, 2, and 9, 11. For verse 14, he's, uh, he's alluding to Daniel 7, 9, and Daniel 10, 6, 1, 15. He's alluding to Ezekiel 1.24 and 43.2 and Daniel 10.6. For 1.16, he's alluding to Isaiah 11, 3-4, 49.2, and Judges 5.31. And so uh, you can see that like this is, this is all just 
found in the Old Testament. These images are all, um, they're, they're not new. We've heard them before. Well, I had some that. Yes. So, yeah, I was really taken recently by that phrase, the Son of Man, and I was curious like, where hellfire is that. And it occurred to me, reading Daniel, that he's seen these figures, one after another, rising up out of the ocean, and they're all beasts. And then, you see, after this series of beasts, then you see something that's not a beast, and it's like a man. Yeah. But except for he's coming down. And so I think he's like a man in contrast to these. And you see a lot of beasts in Revelation, too. Yeah. Yeah, the last, uh, one of the last images there um, is especially significant. The, the sharp, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. Um, it's the uh, weirdest one, too. Yeah, it's, it's also the weirdest one. But it's significant. It speaks to the role of Christ as judge. Um, as we see in the verses it's alluding to, Isaiah 11 and 49, um, also Psalm 2. The sword of his mouth represents his powerful word by which he will judge both the church, will judge the church, and 2.16, which we'll talk about next week, it says, Therefore repent, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the war of my mouth, or with the sword of my mouth, rather, sorry. And then, uh, but this is also how he judges the world in chapter 19. Verse 15, from his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And so his judgment is, uh, is this sword that comes from his mouth. Is he going to just be holding a sword with his teeth and <laughs> killing people that way? No, it, it's, it's talking about uh, the power of his word. We see God's powerful word all throughout the scriptures, and, and we see especially in Jesus Christ, the word of God. In that chapter in Revelation 19, we, we uh, read that on his thigh, he had the name written, the word of God. And so he judges by his word. Yeah. And that picture is of a guy on the throne is Jesus? Yes. Okay, who's the guy named? Uh, that would be John. John, okay. Yeah. Because I was reading that um, the 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 guy with the wall, you know, Jesus was walking amongst the lampstands, amongst the churches, but then there he's sitting on the throne. Yeah, that's, okay. that's not inspired, it's just some guy's, guy's heart. He's so. a terrible artist. Yeah. Uh, I, I forgot to put his name up there. Um, in verses 17 and 18, we, we find John's response. find it interesting. He falls at his feet as though dead. Um, this is similar to how Daniel responds in Daniel 8 and, and 10 when he uh, has, has this vision. Um, and it's also, interestingly, the response that the disciples have to Jesus when he's transfigured in Matthew 17. They fall before him, and just as Jesus does there, he reaches out and he says, do not fear, do not be afraid. He comforts them on the basis of what? Do not be afraid because I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, forevermore. Um, this is the source of, of hope. It's because of all this that, that he can tell John he has nothing to fear. Um, he calls himself the first and the last, and this is essentially what the Father said back in verse 8, and these words are exactly what Yahweh attributes to himself in Isaiah 41 and 44 and 48. So Christ is thus identified as Yahweh, Jesus is also the sovereign God of human history. Um, and then I, I, I love that he's the living one. Again, stressing that he's currently the living one. Uh, he was dead, but behold, he is alive 
forever and ever. All this speaking to his authority, his, his sovereignty, his presence in human history. And then uh, I'm going to skip over verse 19 and then go back to that. But verse 20, um, John starts to unfold the, the mystery. He conveniently, again, tells us uh, what a couple of the, the things mean. Um, the reason that I think that with the, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches... Um, the reason that the churches are addressed through their representative angels is to remind Christians that already a dimension of their existence is heavenly. Um, and their real home is not with the unbelieving earth dwellers. Here's a quote from uh, Greg Beale. One of the purposes of the church meeting on earth in its weekly gatherings, as we see in, in verse 3, he who reads aloud and those who hear in the church gathering, um, one, one, of the re, one of the purposes of the church meeting on the earth in its weekly gatherings is to be reminded of its heavenly existence and, identif- and identity by modeling its worship on uh, that of the angels and heavenly churches' worship of the exalted Lamb. And so this is why we see all throughout Revelation these scenes of heavenly worship, um, and it, it provides a model for us as we worship the Lord together. So you don't think there's any room to interpret that as... And the angels being messengers and maybe also referring to the actual pastors of those, those churches. Um, that, that is an interpretation. I, I don't think that um, the word, so the word angels um, in, in Greek, it can have that um, connotation of a messenger. Every other time it's used in Revelation, it's a spiritual angelic being. So I, I just find it, um, I, I find it unlikely that it would, would it switch there. And I think there's some other uh, good reasons that you could see it as these spiritual, spiritual things. So. Um, verse 19, which I, I want to spend our last, last bit of time on. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place. Um, many people take this verse as, as really instructive for the structure of the book. And so I, I spent a lot of time on, on this as I was, like, I, I thought it was incredible and so I wrote like three pages of commentary on it, and then I was like, no one wants to hear that. Um, but to boil it down, um, I, I think it's really cool. We, we've seen several times throughout this introduction, this passage, this threefold, um, the, this threefold repetition of, of titles or, or what have you. So uh, who is, who, uh, the, the, one, the living one, he says, I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. Get the three who is and who was and who is to come. You get the three again. And so you, you have these things of three. And um, I think that what we have here, just to boil it down, is, is first off, John is, is alluding to um, Daniel 2, which I brought up last week. And there's a, a, a lot of crossover in the language that is being used. And in Daniel 2, he's talking about the future kingdom that will come in the last days. And John now takes this and says, instead of it's going to be coming in the last days, he says, it's coming now. It's near. It's happening soon. And so what Daniel, for Daniel, was really far off, John's saying it's right here. And even him saying it's right here, the, the way that the New Testament authors talk about that in Jesus, um, uh, in, in Mark 1.15, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's the same idea, same word, actually, that, that, um, that John uses. At, by at hand, he means that it's, it's here. It's uh, right around the corner, so to speak. It's actually happening. And so 
the significance of this, this um, vision then is that it is referring to these events that are not just really, really, really far down the future, but that are actually beginning and are, uh, are here and are relevant for us. Again, I mentioned last week, and, and a couple of people have commented on it, that the New Testament authors are, are seeing themselves as in these last days with the, the resurrection of Jesus um, and his exaltation and his uh, ascension to the right hand of the Father, his enthronement as king, that ushered in this, this, uh, this time, these last days. And this is important. It's, it's not only in the book of Revelation. This is actually starting in, in the Old Testament that this, um, this concept is, is really, is really find, finds its genesis. And so in, in the Pentateuch, the, the five books of Moses, there are several pr- places where the phrase in the last days is used. In Genesis 49, in Numbers 24, and Deuteronomy 31, all of these passages are messianic and they're all eschatological. They're all future-oriented. Um, in, in Genesis 49, for example, it's about the, the future king from Judah, the, the lion king from Judah who would come and defeat the serpent. He would rule the nations. The scepter would not uh, depart from his feet. In, in chapter 5, actually, it calls Jesus the Lion of Judah, referring to that, that time. And it says that this is going to happen in the last days. And so, so anyway, the, the last days, according to uh, the Pentateuch, are going to start when the Messiah comes. And Daniel shows this as well. And even in Acts 2, part of that verse that I shared from earlier about the, the New Testament author's view of what the Old Testament authors knew, um, Peter says in Acts 2, at Pentecost, the Spirit has been poured out upon believers, and he quotes Joel, uh, Joel 2, this prophecy that in the last days, same phrase, in the last days, the Spirit will be poured out. Uh, go for it, yeah. Um, sorry. In the last days is when the Messiah comes, but... When John got this revelation, it said close it up until the last days. So, you know, like, John, yeah. Yeah, uh, so, yeah, Daniel is told to keep it closed up. And John at first is told to keep it closed up. And then at the end of the book, he said, don't keep it closed up. Until the last days. Um, Let me see if I can find real quick. Because it sounds like the last days weren't when the Messiah came because the, yeah, it's this concept of their, uh, so in, in tw- uh, 22.10, Jesus says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. And again, the time is near, it's, it's here. Um, and so back to the, the Acts 2 passage, though, Joel is saying that in the last days, that same phrase, the spirit would be poured out upon his people, uh, upon the people of God. Peter says that um, this is happening right now. People have, the the spirit has come. He brings up Psalm 16. He says that David wrote in Psalm 16, uh, prophesying about Jesus. And that this, this this occurred, the ushering in of the last days when Jesus was exalted. And so, uh, again, the the, the point with with all of this is that, the last days are, are set in motion 
with the coming of Christ and, and especially with his, his, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. And so the last days aren't just these far off future days, but they are here, they are coming soon, they are at hand, they are near. They're all referring to the, the same thing, that they are, they are right here. And they're, they're there are some things that he refers to in that Acts 2 part that haven't happened yet too, right? I mean, it's like he's talking about things that, that are, are currently happening, but it's also pointing towards things that are yet to come as well. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, it's ongoing, but I, I think the, the, the key thing is that it, it has started. Right. And it's, it's this ongoing thing, yeah. Yeah. I thought it said um, in the last days, you know, communication will increase, travel will increase. I thought that was kind of the beginning of the last days. Uh, can you show me a verse reference? Frank, do you remember that? You know, where the communication will increase, the, the coming, coming of the Lord, the second coming is, is a time when um, communication I mean, will increase. Are you talking about when Jesus is talking to the disciples? Travel will increase. Like, what is going to happen? Yeah. I mean, the only thing I can think no. of is that all eyes will see him, you know, that, that kind of thing. But I, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not really sure. I wish I had the verse. I don't know. Uh, if, well, if you find it, let me know. Um, the, the reason that I wanted to spend a little bit of time though, on, on this verse in, in 19 that I, that I think is talking about, not just about, okay, you saw some stuff, you got your initial vision, and then what is now, a lot of people say, oh, this is just talking about chapters two and three, the letters to the churches, and then everything else is just about the future, what will take place later. But I think when we look at the allusion to Daniel and what he's picking up on, um, that all of this is, is in the context of this eschatological framework, this last days framework. And so what you have seen, what is, in, what is now and what will take place, it's all um, both past, present, and, and future. It's all um, happening. Yeah. So it's more than just this, this far off future time. And um, I, I think that this is important to point out because most people, and I know that I, I did for a long time, I, I just thought that Revelation is only about this, this far-off future time. Um, it's only about the time surrounding Christ's return, these final years. But if what I have said is, is true about the, the New Testament authors saying that the, the last days have begun with the, the resurrection of Christ and that we are in these last days, um, and, and I think it is from the text, then the book of Revelation is telling us what will occur throughout the entire period of the last days, which is the period from Christ's resurrection to his return. The last days aren't just when he returns, it's from his resurrection to his return. And so the visions of the book will speak to life and the history of the church in every age, including that in which the recipients of the book lived. And then even though, uh, and then also to us and, and those in the future until Christ comes again. And even though there may be aspects which speak specifically to the time period immediately before the second coming, we still need to understand that um, the book as a whole and, and, and most of it is, is going to be for us all in every age and it is about the things that are occurring from the resurrection until the last days. Um, and, and this keeps the book relevant for all Christians of all times. I think that it... Uh, I mean, would you say that even though 
without like saying, well, this verse talks about this event happening, like maybe the Holocaust or something like that. Without having to make a direct reference, you could say, well, it's like that. You know, where you could say, these people are enduring something that is similar to what's being shown in the book of mm -hmm. Revelation. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and, I, and that's um, similar to the, uh, the view that I brought up, the, the idealist view, seeing that these things just keep playing themselves out. And so it's not so much a, oh, there's one particular thing that we need to identify and because and, people do that and then, okay, all these things have happened and now Jesus is going to come back and then he doesn't come back and now we had to rearrange everything. Where, where right, did we go right. wrong? And so um, that's where we have to be careful of, you know, kind of the looking through the newspaper and trying to yeah. figure everything out. But, um, but yeah, we do see ways that, that these things play themselves out. So, um, all right, that's, uh, I, we'll, we'll call it there. I don't want don't to go, uh, go super long over time. Um, I did want to want to leave you guys just at least thinking in, in your own in your own uh, mind as you uh, as you go home. The third step that we talk about sharing. What timeless eternal truth can you draw from the text? What is the main idea? An important thing to to note is that with with these shared truths that there's different types. You can have ones that are are commands that are urging that are the the text is telling you to maybe do something, uh, to do an action. And then you also have ones that are, are teaching, that are instructing you, that are, are reframing your, uh, your attitude towards the world, reframing your, um, your, your worldview or the way that you, you think and imagine about things. And so um, when we talk about then responding to this text, in these first few verses, there, there are, I mean, some things that we can draw out um, maybe about, oh, okay, we should do this, we should do that. But I, I think the, um, the, the biggest thing to take away is the, just the view that we are to have of, of history, of, um, of our lives in the present, of the, the power and sovereignty of God. And so it's not that you have to go home and do all these things, but that you, you in your life are reflecting on the truth that this teaching just again look through how this passage talks about Jesus. It's it's so beautiful how uh, how powerful he is and how he's identified with with Yahweh. We have again this trinitarian formula of uh, God the Father and then the sevenfold Spirit and then Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and so. Um, let these, these images, let these, these truths, the one who is and who was and who is to come, let these impact your, your, your heart and your mind as you, you live day to day. Jesus Christ is present. He is the one who is. He is the living one. He is with you. He is with us. And we can find great hope and joy in that. Um, so we'll, uh, we'll call it there. Is there any questions before, before we close? One more. Homework, yes. Oh, that is, that's a good point. That is the last thing I wanted to bring up. Um, I, I'll, I have a little handout I can give you guys. Um, I, if you are able, you don't have to do it again. If you read it once, uh, if you didn't read it uh, in its entirety, I think it will be helpful just for you to read the whole book. Um, but if, once you have read the book, it'll be helpful for you to come up with a one or two sentence summary statement for the entire book. Try to capture the main idea what is John communicating in the book of Revelation? Um, and then, for the second part, what is the purpose of the book? And this is, a, this is different 
because we're, we're now asking, why did John write the book of Revelation? So what was the purpose for writing what he did? Uh, and then read through the, the following passage. It's, it's a little bit longer, so read through it once or twice. Um, and then there will be an outline that has some of the, the similar, um, similar things that, uh, that there were in the, the last homework assignment, just on seeing, understanding, sharing, responding. But I also um, threw in some questions that I think are relevant to this passage, things to be on, on the lookout for. Uh, but yeah, other than that, uh, that's it. And I will look forward to, to seeing you guys next week. So any other, any other questions? All right, great. Thank you guys so much.